Helena, you know how you're like completely obsessed with who wants to be a millionaire? Oh, harking <laughs> back to the first episode, are we? <laughs> See which of our fans are really fans. That's right, it's quiz time. And this week we're looking at homelessness. My question for you is this. Which of the following figures represents the national homeless population count in Britain? Uh, I'm going to round to the nearest thousand. A, 3,000. B, 68,000. C, 227,000. There's a very wild disparity between A and C there. Mm -hmm. I'll go down the middle, I'll go B. Well, the answer is actually all of them. So it's interesting you point out the disparity. I'll tell you the methods. So one way the government measures homelessness is by counting the people sleeping on England's streets on one night of the year. And the latest count was less than 3,000. The government realised a few years ago this wasn't a very efficient method, so they also started publishing the number of households assessed to be homeless by local authorities. And that latest figure neared 68,000. But the charity crisis did some troubling research with Harriet Watt University and found closer to a quarter of a million people in Britain were homeless. They think 62% of homeless people don't show up in official counts. Wow. And why would some homeless people not show up in those figures? Because they're hidden. In cafes, libraries, sleeping on the night bus, they could be in airport terminals, and that massively distorts the figures. And then there are people behind bars. Do you know any really outdated laws that still exist where you wouldn't expect them to? Like in Singapore, you can be fined £50,000 for chewing gum i'd probably save money in the long term if i pay the 50 grand fine and then stop buying you are addicted to chewing gum did you actually know that in london but excluding the city district Uh it's illegal to walk down the street while carrying a plank of wood how am i gonna get my plank of wood home well exactly (laughs) mps can be arrested if they wear a suit of armor into parliament I mean, it wouldn't be the most ridiculous thing an MP has ever done. Did you also know it's illegal to shake a carpet or a rug in the street? Except for a doormat before 8am. I've definitely done that. Have you? What are you shaking carpets in the street yeah. for? Yeah, and I did it out a window and I dropped it. I've <gasps> dropped so many things That's out That's probably window. why it's illegal. Nearly hit a pedestrian. <laughs> okay, but why are we talking about so-called ridiculous laws? Yeah, good question. Well, among these ridiculous laws, arguably, is the Vagrancy Act 1824, which criminalises being homeless. So if you find yourself out on the streets, you are actually breaking the law. Wow. That's just one of many reasons why homelessness is hidden in its true scale. So if the problem is so much bigger than rough sleeping, and if so much of homelessness isn't reflected in the data, how can we create accurate solutions? And are we trying to eradicate homelessness or just keep it out of sight? Well, I've been investigating hidden homelessness and what goes on behind closed doors doors. I'll be heading into temporary accommodation facilities, speaking to people who've been taken off the streets by force and looking at what the media is missing when it reports on this problem. And I'll see you back in the studio with a very special guest to discuss everything around this media storm. 
if you give them money all the time, all you're doing is encouraging them to stay where they are and carry on begging. I would give the homeless my last pound if I knew they weren't fed. A hand up, not a hand out. In this sleeping bag lies a homeless drug addict, ignored by all those who pass by. It was the wrongful killing of their father. The man was homeless at the time of his death. Welcome to Media Storm, the news podcast that starts with the people who are normally asked last. I'm Matilda Mallinson. And I'm Helena Wadia. This week's investigation, homelessness, the hidden figures. Who do you picture when you hear the word homeless? I was sleeping in a doorway, covered in the blood from the intravenous drug use. I was an embarrassment to humankind. Do you think of Kerry? A sleeping bag on the pavement, cold hands begging on the station floor. I guess you don't picture what you can't see. They're in libraries. They're in pubs trying to have a coffee or something. A motorhome. To me, that was a home. Slum accommodation. So dirty. There was bugs everywhere. Cockroaches. These are the people who are sleeping in their cars. These are the people who are sleeping on night buses, on night tubes, at Heathrow Airport. You don't see them, you don't notice them, but they're out there. You know, they're everywhere. It was almost like a great separation at about midnight. I felt like Cinderella. When everyone's going home from these places, like Weatherspoons or something, and I was going out on the street. Homelessness is bigger than we think, and the vast majority is behind closed doors. This helps the optics, but does it actually help? I was safe around the street and I wasn't in the homeless hostels. I've had people die in my arms. I've had to drag people out there because ambulance people won't come in. During the pandemic, a hostel in Coventry was shut down due to knife violence. But one man inside, artist Ben J. Crossman, kept a documentary of his time, and he shared it with MediaStorm. When you arrived at the hostel for the first time, what were your first impressions? Honestly, I was very relieved. You know, I felt appreciative. There was food. I had my own room, a microwave. Part of me thought, man, this is, this is luxury. And then I met the people and I was immediately concerned for my, for my safety. Wow, they're fucking crackheads here. They're fucking heroin heads here. It's fucking mental, Brad that thinks he could go around robbing people's rooms. Jenny, the mad crack granny. Aaron, complete and utter liar. And then you've got Carl, he just keeps himself to himself. His brain is falling out of his head. Gone. Threats and boisterousness and yelling and screaming and I was overwhelmed at the drugs, man. If you want me to smoke a fucking proper spliffin, let me know one. Surely they would have at least, you know, an NA meeting downstairs in the hall, like once a week for the people that want it. They just pull out a rock pipe out their pocket, just start smoking crack cocaine right there in my room. I didn't get a choice of being exposed to that stuff. It's, it's quite draining. I just wish there was like a, a Buddha Zen shelter for all the the chilled out hobos <laughs> you know so do you think many people go in clean or relatively clean and develop addictions while in these hostels yes and i can speak from my own experience when i got put into the hostel it was one month in and i literally i couldn't handle it anymore it was just violent and aggressive and there were people showing up to the building throwing rocks at the windows where's my fucking money i'm gonna kill you yelling at drug addicts that owe the dealers money and it was just like i was like oh fuck this i smoked a few spliffs i'm gonna admit and it it took the edge off you know 
I've been told that dealers will target these hostels knowing there are vulnerable people inside who can be roped onto addictive patterns. Is this something that you witnessed? We literally had dealers yelling up to the windows offering us shit. There were just so many drug deals right there in that parking lot. The staff, most of them, turned a blind eye. Benjay, in your documentary, some of the women in the hostel turned to prostitution to pay for their addictions. Oh, just stay downside of our rooms while we do them, mate. Have respect. That's all I fucking ask. I feel really sorry for, for example, like Sophie. Be two in the morning and she's out there in the street trying to find a customer to make a little bit of money just so she can have another another hit because her skin is literally crawling, you know? So in effect, have these hostels, organisations paid by the state to support vulnerable people, have they become places of business? I'd say yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it was pretty standard. I mean, I even heard of one of the staff members partaking. I respect you, are the only person who worked anyone up last night. The sounds going throughout the shelter and sometimes there's kids staying there amongst all of this shit. Do you think the staff should be doing more to intervene in these situations or or is that way beyond the remit of their job and training? I remember one day when there was some violence going down and yeah, I just remember the staff member on duty just like really distressed, just saying like, man, I'm not paid enough for this shit. They've got to not only look after one vulnerable, crazy person that might be acting out that day, but a whole building full of them. And there's one staff member on duty at a time. And I mean, things get really scary when the bigger guys start getting drugged up and physical and threats of murder and meet me in the parking lot. So I hold absolutely zero responsibility or blame on the staff members. I can only say from my own experience that they've just been wonderful uh, sharing their own food, time, resources with these people. 90 euros a day the government was paying for my room, which was not worth that. This guy has multiple hotels converted to shelters. So you can get more money for a shelter than you can for a hotel. You can't rent out a 15-room, one-star hotel every night of the month. But you can do it if it's a shelter and the government's paying your top rates. These are very greedy, dishonest people as far as I'm concerned. That's what I observed based on how the places were running, you know. There are two agendas at play here, keeping people off the streets and profiting from it. So what happens when they come into conflict? I suffer with chronic fatigue syndrome. When Paul Atherton's housing benefits stopped due to what the government later admitted was an administrative error, the homeless hostel that had been putting him up said it couldn't continue to do so without payment. So they wheeled me out in my wheelchair and left me on the street. Now, I was just left there to die in the cold. Goodbye, not our problem. The government allocates different budgets for different types of spaces, different areas of the country. Landlords accepting tenants with certain vulnerabilities can also be financially rewarded. But how that money is spent is not enforced. In fact, many of these sites have failed basic standards checks and still remain on the market. There was one, for instance, I I saw which was called a a flat, but it, it was difficult to actually walk in there so really you had no space between the bed and the kitchen area and the bed and the window you couldn't actually put anything in there because the toilet 
door would open. It was ridiculous. It was, and that was about £1,100 a month. I was offered um, a, a room that was bigger than these places for half the money, 550 but I wasn't allowed to take it by the council because they said it was exceeded the, the housing allowance rate for that category, which was a room category. And that's the absurdity of the system. These policies that, you know, they, they may make sense to some people, but to homeless people, they make no sense at all. And I ended up on the streets for longer. These hostels play home to people with a wide range of needs, some of which are very complex. Charities say it's not enough to house them. There needs to be more support. No aftercare, no support to defend for myself with a breakfast pack. I had to sort all medications out, I had to sort benefits out, I didn't know how to do, how to budget bills and that, didn't have a clue, man. Like Earl Charlton, several of our sources spent their childhoods in care, which makes them particularly vulnerable to homelessness. I have mental health issues and no one ever came with me to break it all down. You know, it was like nobody ever came and took me through the stages. They expected me to fend for myself, given my chaotic background. Surely they would have thought differently if they had been doing their job properly, but hey, my opinion. In 2019, The Guardian reported that one in four teens leaving care ended up homeless. But government numbers are much lower, lately listing only 1% of care leavers as becoming homeless, though their records show eight times as many with accommodation unknown. One reason for this discrepancy could be the difficulty many care leavers face holding on to the accommodation in the long run but they may only get one shot. And then because the tenancy failed, I was then classed as intentionally homeless and then discharged from the council list. No one was going to help me anymore and I found myself off sleeping again on the streets. That's the issue with the term intentionally homeless. So say if someone's been antisocial and got kicked out of their property, or hey, what if someone's fleed their property because they're scared of the environment they're in because it's too chaotic? It's so easy to judge someone that's sitting at your feet, taking drugs, begging... You need to know what their story is. You need to know what's gone on behind that. It's never a nice story. It's mainly because there's been breakdowns in the system, breakdown after breakdown after breakdown, and that's what you need to be judging. That's what you need to be fixing. Accessing homeless accommodation can be a tricky game. You have to prove that you're connected to the local authority. You have to prove that you're homeless and not by choice. Now, this can literally mean you have to be seen sleeping on the streets multiple times over a certain period. But if you do do that, you could end up somewhere else. He just grabbed me round the neck and in one second had me on the ground, cuffed my hands behind my back and popped my freaking shoulder out of joint. If you fail to pay, you will be arrested and put in prison and by definition, you'll certainly be housed. Right. Um, <laughs> doctors grabbed me, pinned me down, injected me in the backside with something. They put me in a cell with blood on the floor. It, it was disgusting. There was one cop man who used to always go out his way, whether he was in uniform or not, and come and move me, bother me, arrest me. Your cops take my cell phone away from your homeless man. My lifeline. From homelessness behind closed doors to homelessness behind bars. The 1824 Vagrancy Act criminalises sleeping in public and begging in England and Wales. In 2019, the latest published figures, there were 926 prosecutions for begging. Most convictions result in a fine. Some people are sent to prison. I've been arrested twice due to the Vagrancy Act. One of them is Kerry Douglas, who's now an author. Now, the first time I ever went to prison, I think I was around 20, 21, it was because I was sat, not even begging, but sat in my pitch, not being aggressive, 
I used to just sit there reading, just chilling, and people used to drop me money because I wasn't bothering anyone. But I still got arrested. The second time, I was like, no, I'm not going back to jail. So I pleaded the mental health card. Big mistake. So I got sent to the Gordons Hospital in Victoria and I was sectioned for 48 hours. I kicked off like a wild animal because they put me in the shower. Not one, not two, but about six of them. All big, bigger than me. And they scrubbed me and they pinned me down. It was horrible. So I kicked off like a wild animal, obviously. So then they shot me up the backside with a shot of clopromazine, which is a drug that literally sent me into paralysis. I couldn't speak, I couldn't do anything. It's disgusting the way they treat people that are homeless. They don't understand that the trauma that we've already been through, and now they're layering more and more on by pinning me down in the shower, scrubbing me and then shooting me with drugs to knock me out. Are you kidding me? Few European countries directly criminalise homelessness in the same way as the UK, but legislation against begging or trespassing, which is often levied against rough sleepers, is common. As is careful urban design that creates a hostile infrastructure for those without home, like metal arms on park benches, spikes on flat surfaces, or a lack of public wash facilities. The USA is a prime example where being out of a home quickly finds you outside of the law as well. There are still warrants out for my arrest right now in parts of Texas because I illegally drove my motorhome. Meet Chase Archer Evans, who campaigns to legalize homelessness from a position of lived experience. Fundamentally, it begins with the requirement of a permanent physical address, which immediately places those of us without a residence outside of legality. And it presents a huge barrier to identification, which in itself can be a barrier to every facet of our society, from gaining employment and traveling to enter housing or even some homeless shelters. And using a friend or family member's address where one does not actually live is perjury. It can also be tax fraud if you file your taxes from an address that isn't yours as well. How does one renew their vehicle registration? How does somebody open a P.O. box to get mail? Because you need both valid ID and a permanent physical address in order to satisfy the requirements. And all of a sudden you can't get a job, open a bank account, continue to use your private motor vehicle, enter housing. Some homeless shelters require that identification just to get through the door. Cities all across the nation ban things like solicitation, camping, feeding other people. There are parking laws, penalties for trespassing on public property, sit, sleep, lay down laws that can punish people for sitting down in certain circumstances. It's truly mind-blowing all the ways cities have been creative in criminalizing homelessness. In yet another catch-22, being thrown into prison tends to increase your chances of ending up on the street afterwards. 16,000 people released from prison between 2020 and 2021 ended up homeless or with no known accommodation. That's twice as many as were housed in bail or probation accommodation. It's a situation journalist Claire Barstow knows all too well. When I, I first came out of prison, I went into a, a women's hostel in Reading. It was very difficult because they, they charge you a service charge, but then you have to pay, but then you don't get your benefits for six weeks. So most people can't pay, which was something that I really found devastating. And a lot of people end up getting recalled back to prison because they couldn't find anywhere suitable to stay. I, I know this girl, Mel, she's been in prison for 27 years, I think. 
Um, and she, I don't know if she's ever, you know, she's going to get out because they can't find suitable accommodation for her. Because so she's she, been out and been in. Yeah, 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 been yeah, yeah. She's been in. Yeah, I think it's three times she's been out, and each time they haven't found suitable accommodation for her. Was the is the hostel exclusively for people coming out of prison? Either coming out of prison or being known to the criminal justice system. Yeah. Okay. When you leave prison, You're, what do they give you? They give you forty-two pounds, and that's it. So, and they expect people to survive, which is why a lot of people end up back in prison again because they can't survive. And um, so, can you apply for regular benefits? When yes, you leave but prison? yes, you can. But it takes at least six to eight weeks to come through. And you can't apply six to eight weeks before being released from prison. No. So you have six to eight weeks outside of prison where you have no benefits. Yes. And £42 to survive on. Yes, that's right. This discharge grant, as that allowance is called, was actually increased to £76 last year, which in its totality covers about two weeks in the hostel. So when you were in the hostel with other women who'd come out of prisons and had no money to pay their service charge... How did they keep their place in that hostel? Well, a lot of them ended up working as prostitutes, stealing or committing crime. And the hostel knew about this, the staff, but they kind of turned a blind eye as long as the women played the service charge. If the hostel had, had been any, had, had any positive intention, they would have said, well, look, you, you don't have to pay your service charge until you get your benefits. That's what they should have said. Um, but I, I got a letter saying, oh, you will be made homeless unless you pay your service charge. You know, they threatened to put me out on the street and I was in, I was in a wheelchair at the time. Uh, it's, it's pretty awful. A lot of them, a lot of them die within a month of leaving prison. So it's a, it's a death sentence, really, for some. Or they end up with sexually transmitted diseases, syphilis and obviously hypothermia, pneumonia, double pneumonia, bronchitis, hep C, hep B. It's very scary. Where does responsibility lie? Is homelessness an individual responsibility or is it a fault of the system? That's the final question I asked our sources. For too long, people at the bottom end of society have been ignored and I think they've been exploited. I think that people have been paid too little, people at the top are paid too much. There is a single point that we're all united in is that the welfare system didn't work, the people that we went to for help weren't helpful. Remind the public is systemic. It is not an individual problem. It is not being created by drugs or alcohol or gambling or anything else. It has been created because we have legislation that allow for rental prices to be insane, for home ownership to be a complete dream. It's a fight to be the best, to be the richest, to have the most. Who cares about a couple of kids on drugs who fucked up their own lives? Who really cares? In 10 years' time, you're still going to be making podcasts about homelessness in Britain. Now, the, the reason there's a rise in homelessness is because people at the top have failed to allocate the right funding, the right staff, and the right training. Everything is so outdated now, and no one's taking accountability for the mistakes. And also, they don't know what they're doing. I'm not being funny, but how can you understand how to end homelessness if you've never actually been homeless? That takes us back to the studio. Thanks for sticking around.
Welcome back to the studio and to Media Storm, a podcast that puts people with lived experience at the centre of reporting. Today we are talking about homelessness and how the media reports on people affected. With us is a very special guest. You'll thank us because he's a comedian and an award-winning comedian at that, whose five-star sellout show Underclass is now taking to Amazon Prime. He has performed on BBC Asian Network, BBC Three, ITV2 and more. It's Kai Sambra. Hi, Kai. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) We've just listened to the investigation that I did into hidden forms of homelessness that don't normally make headlines. Is this something that you're aware of? And do you think that we're given an accurate sense of the scale of homelessness by the media? A hundred percent. I think there was a Guardian article a few years back, which I always referred to, which said a fifth of young people in the UK are homeless at that time. You just can't see them. And I was kind of thinking, yeah, maybe you're just not looking for them. (laughs) Or they they do seem invisible. Because I think I think the issue of homelessness is so multifaceted. It's, you know, I, you know I've got personal experiences of it. I, I was like sleeping rough when I was a kid and I stayed at Centrepoint when I was younger, which is like a youth homeless shelter. Um, and the idea of homelessness of a person that's in a sleeping bag, like outside, isn't just like one aspect of it. There's so many people like couch surfing or, um, yeah. you know, who, who, you know, are just staying in like libraries and 24 hour Mackie D's over the night and staying up in the middle of the day. It's, it's so much more than that. And I think there definitely needs to be more of a light on that as well. I think that's a really good point. And I think a lot of that is to do with the mainstream media's use of certain language and imagery when they're talking about homelessness. Most news outlets are at least superficially sympathetic towards homeless people. But, you know, as a public, we have managed to massively depersonalize the issue. You know, we Mm. avert our eyes when people are asking for money on the tube and we don't really know how to help. So I guess we have to look at how we got to this point. And the mainstream media will often use terms like the homeless or if it's kind of connected to a crime story, they'll often use vagrant. They use stock imagery of faceless people in doorways or people looking particularly disheveled. Does this language and imagery allow readers to more easily otherize homeless people 100 percent. i massively agree with that and i think there is a massive fetishization especially in the mainstream media there was a, i don't know if you guys saw this there was like a there was a program called like rich kids go homeless oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was on channel five obviously and <laughs> i mean we didn't even need to say that and it was just essentially just like rich kids like just going like sleeping rough on the street it's a, it's just it's there's such a fetishization of that and it was like i'm doing it so i did a documentary about like youth homelessness mm-hmm. and uh, obviously I wanted to do something which was slightly different to the way that it's normally portrayed. One, because it was a personal thing of me going back to Centrepoint and and, uh, talking to the people that I spent time with there and what they're doing now. And that's so different to like how someone like Louis Theroux would do it because essentially what they would want is like, well, we need a good story. We need someone who's like, on the streets that are mm. like doing heroin and you're like well that's like i i'm like i'm not like that and it's it's you know i think there's a there needs to be a more honest and open look at that issue yeah we we look to fulfill the stereotypes we already have yeah. when we're telling these stories in the press one of the men i spoke to in the investigation paul so he's a filmmaker um and he has in his past done professional style headshot photo shoots and he always makes these photos available to press that do coverage on him right but they will always go for an anonymous man in a sleeping bag on the pavement yeah. over the gq style photo shoot he's got of himself you know <laughs> yeah. he, d- he even even sympathetic press he says does this and it is frustrating that like, we don't want to p- portray pe- these people as whole humans with 
often careers and yeah. you know families it's just like the homeless person trope 100% it also means that we kind of forget about all these different kind of intersections not yeah. just hidden homelessness yeah but intersections of like you're more likely to be homeless if you're LGBT or you're yeah. more likely to be homeless if you've kind of come out of prison 100%. or if you're disabled yeah and so then we don't also get to see any of these intersections yeah, of homelessness 100% I massively agree with that because like at sense point it's a huge plethora of reasons why so many people are there like maybe they're from a, a particular their family don't accept their sexuality or their gender um, even people that come out of the military things like that with PTSD and I think what happens is, yeah, you distance yourself away from that issue when actually you realise it's so easy to become homeless. And really, the, that it's re- if you boil if you boil it down to a, a really succinct thing, it's essentially people just don't have a network to fall back on. That's essentially all it is. Like, I mean, I think we've probably so many people are listening to this or in the industry have probably been in a, in a situation where they're in London, say, in the arts, and they've run out of money and they're like, oh, I'm gonna have to move back with my parents. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you don't have that you then then you go to then you sign on and you use benefits but then now it's the way that universal credit is it's like this kafka-esque system just to get any money and then if you if you turn up five minutes late to a meeting then you won't get that money then you're homeless it's so 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 easy if you just don't have that yeah. network like it's it's not a meritocracy and i think there's a, it's kind of weird because a lot of people at sense point especially young people they want to get into the arts because it like presents itself as this very left-wing liberal meritocracy and then i remember always thinking oh my god if i'm just good at stand-up it doesn't matter how rich my parents are it doesn't matter what university i go to and then i realized that's very wrong <laughs> and then and i think that's kind of what i you know i think it's really important to portray and highlight those mm. people without some fetishizing them or sort of diminishing them yeah you said a meritocracy again one of the interviewees i spoke to he said that we're really obsessed with rags to riches stories one of the most common tropes or one of the most common stories you see told about homelessness are these rags to riches I mean headlines like this is from the sun I grew up in poverty and was homeless as a kid now I'm a multi-millionaire at 25 with a Lamborghini and designer clothes yeah. you know there was that whole Molly May scandal yeah. a few yeah. weeks ago why do we love these rags to riches tropes because it is ever, it's also in our in our film and TV, it's in our fairy tales. But yeah. does it kind of drill home this idea that, you know, if, if you're born into poverty, all you need to do to get out of it is hard work? I, I always take some of those stories with a pinch of salt because I think um, you think, oh, were you that? Or were, like, were you really that? Are you just trying to maybe like portray yourself as making your story a bit better? And I think uh, it's kind of funny because when I did the show, so many people like who came up to me like, oh my god, I'm so jealous of you. You got you got a story, and I'm like, nah, it's pretty traumatic actually. Oh. Like, and it was like, it's a really weird thing because I. So I'll tell you this: I actually never told anyone about me being a center point and sleeping with when I was um, when I left. Um, like even ex-girlfriends that I was with for a long time, I never did. I never told. I just didn't tell anybody about it. Um, I think if you come from that environment, you you never say things like, oh, I deserve this. Like, I think it's the opposite. Like, you kind of, like, I found it so tough. And, and I, if I'm being super honest, like, I still do. When I started doing salad, no one really knew about my story. And then it's only once I did the Amazon, the Amazon special that I talked about that. And the difference, the, the way people treat you is so negative in quite a big way. I was literally, like, sleeping rough out on the same road as Soho Theatre, because Centrepoint's on the same street. Right. And like I literally went from sleeping rough outside so theater, like 
you know, literally going up to strangers just saying the same thing over and over again and I hope they give me a bit of money to do stand-up comedy, which, to be fair, doesn't sound like a big difference. To be fair, it's essentially just the same thing, just begging with banter. That's all stand-up comedy is. Except on one, your posters outside Soho Theatre yeah. rather than you. But, like, people don't realise, like, that was a huge head fuck, like a massive one because it's like do you feel like the same person but you feel like the world's just twisted and like shaped like just completely like gone 180 on his axis and everyone's treating you differently five years ago you weren't even giving me a quid when I asked for it and now you're like you know like oh so you show like there's a huge unconscious bias and a lot of that is down to the media because obviously oh as we know by the media all people who people who are homeless like do crime and do drugs mm. and stuff like that and I'm not saying that isn't the case like because Obviously, at centre point, there was like hard drugs were so prevalent, and it, I'm not making it out like it was uh, a nice place to be in. But you can't taint that all with the whole issue of homelessness or that every oh you've been kicked out of your house because your family don't uh, agree with your sexuality. Oh, you must be a bad person. It's like hold mm. on, that's not the case. And like I think there needs to be a lot more uh, like a spotlight on those sort of people to tell their stories. The mainstream media and the public, we love to deny the true scale of people's economic situations and then yeah. blame them for it exactly 100 <laughs> percent. people are, i think people are really bad at like acknowledging their own privilege and stuff yeah and it's much easier to see homelessness as a personal failure than a systemic one because 100%. it's less scary right because Ex- then it's and maybe a- less guilt inducing well yeah that as well because how many times a day do people pretend not to hear or avoid eye, eye contact with someone yeah. right in front of them who is clearly in a position of distress exactly. yeah because if you think oh that guy's an addict that guy um he must have done he must have got himself into debt or something hmm. it's so much easier to walk past them than really think about like the lack of affordable housing or yeah. the lack of quality education or whatever other things systemic cause homelessness 100 percent. you know that things like universal credit and those things like that that has just like increased homelessness so much i wonder how people are expected to empathize with the person whose perspectives it so rarely sees through whose voices it so rarely hears and when we read news reports on homelessness Mm. the blueprint for whose voices we hear is normally a government or local government spokesperson Mm. and the ceo of a homeless charity and a lot of the people i interviewed had a huge issue with that yeah why do you think journalists don't even think most of the time to include the voice of the person directly affected i think the situation with people who experience homelessness is slightly different to some of the other episodes Mm. we've done on minority groups so we've done like refugees and transgender people Mm. and i think that the reason is different is because we don't have to convince people that homelessness is bad whereas like with refugees and trans people like they almost have to like go this extra step where they're convincing people that they're like not evil yeah yeah um but you know you would think that that might make it easier for journalists to get lived experience voices on yeah but i think maybe what the problem is is that they view the negativity associated with homelessness Mm. with homeless people yeah and then they become so otherized yeah that they might think it's too difficult to approach a homeless person Mm. definitely and i think the thing is i think it's a human thing i think everyone needs to look at themselves you know and like you know I probably have unconscious biases and I think it's almost a case of just like everyone trying to be a little bit better and like seeing past those things and basically every production company I've ever had a meeting with or ever worked with and every management company I've ever had a meeting with or worked with like doesn't even have and this is genuinely true doesn't have one person of colour working in the entire company out of 
the 30 of different management and production companies, let alone getting someone from like a center point or homelessness. So I feel like, for example, if I like, I'll talk about this homelessness documentary that I'm doing. So it was, it was really good because I went back to Centerpoint, met back up with the people that I knew. And it was like an interesting, multifaceted way of looking at it. Then suddenly they're like, oh, no, we think it's better like this. And it's suddenly just like fetishized into this thing of like, now we need to get this heroin yeah. out of it. We need to make it more train spotting because that's what's going to sell. And it's, and it's that kind of thing. And I think like people who watch TV shows aren't stupid. And I really, like they want to see something that's interesting and complex i think you know and i think that's that's the issue it's not just allowing those people to have a voice it's like systemic it's time to talk about headlines or in this case the lack thereof Christmas, as usual, saw an upturn in coverage about homelessness, particularly with the cost of living crisis. But the most striking thing about our headline search this morning was that there simply weren't very many. Why does the media's compassion for homelessness seem to be seasonal? Homeless person isn't just for Christmas, it's well life. No, I think, yeah, I think it's, um, I suppose, yeah, I suppose Christmas is that time of giving, right? And I think it's so weird that as a society we only feel that bad <laughs> during Christmas. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's just that time of you with your family and giving. stuff like that. And I think that's obviously the issue. The reason we kind of give as a society is almost like just to make ourselves feel better for a bit or just get like a, you know, just a, a bit of dopamine in the brain or, you know, like just to, and you think... No, this is like a, a big systemic issue that kind of needs to be resolved. When I was at Centrepoint, there was like a scheme. It was mostly like quite middle class people and they were going out giving sleeping bags to homeless people. And I was like, you're not helping the situation. And that's like giving it to someone who's drowning and giving them a pair of Speedos. Like you're just <laughs> like, going, you can stay there, but we'll just give you a sleeping bag just to make them a little bit more comfortable. Oh. And it was like, and I think, yeah, I think there's a, a very cliche thing. Like I'll, I'll be super honest. So when I was, uh, you know, when I was in that situation, I... You used to just like stay, sleep in the library in the day and then just like do like night bus and stay like Mackie D's. And I was only like 17. I was only a little kid. But you so, say, well, I wouldn't ever be in a sleeping bag with a, cu- with a, a coffee cup outside. Like, you know, so it's, it's, it's even those things. It's just like playing on cliche and stuff. And instead of always depicting homeless people in like, oh, a sleeping bag and stuff, it, let, let us just have a more open, convers- open conversation about how many people are actually affected by it. Mm. What we have seen headlines on is the cost of living crisis as rising prices are colliding with tax hikes. It's kind of the perfect storm and homelessness projections are really quite scary. One issue that's cropped up in the press massively has been inflation Mm. and how it's reported on. And that is about to change. Mm. Now, the inflation figure you'll generally see in the news is headline inflation. It's a raw overall figure that can disguise things like seasonal fluctuations or exceptionally volatile categories like food and energy prices. Food and energy prices are very sensitive to certain factors, such as environmental factors, which affect crop yields, or geopolitics, which affects oil supplies. Right now, they are particularly extreme due to the combined efforts of COVID and Brexit's impact on labour, global imports, etc. So the inflation figures you've read about haven't really shown just how extreme price changes in these categories are. So all of these issues were pointed out in a recent Twitter thread that has since gone completely viral by Jack Monroe, a food poverty campaigner and a chef. And 
as a result of their complaints of how misleading the reporting on inflation has been and how it underplays the true cost of living implications for poorer households, the Office for National Statistics has agreed to expand its data collection methods and publish more accurate figures. Yay, so for those of you who've managed to stay awake through this inflation snooze fest, there's actually a really good reason we're talking about this on MediaStorm because this is a rare but really great example of the media accepting the superior knowledge of someone with lived experience. Jack managed to break through on Twitter, but the media really responded. They were on every talk show, have had loads of opinion pieces published. And so it's just a testimony to diversity of thought prevailing. Kai, were you aware of this story? Yeah, I did actually see it on Twitter. I'm a big fan of Jack Monroe. And like mm. I said, it's... Um, I think it's really important just to have like voices like that. And it's the thing is like things like inflation and economics, I would have gone str- a mile over my head before. <laughs> like, right. uh, yeah, the only thing like, yeah, I know Freddo's have gone up from 15p to 35p now and I'm livid and I'm assuming that's Stop. what inflation means. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the only thing is effect. Yeah. But it's, isn't it a failing of the media that it affects us on a day to day life? Mm. Massively. Have we missed the mark? Even the idea of like, now I'm a comedian, I'm making my own money, like paying tax. And I'm just like, no one's ever told me about this. <laughs> like, no, like, Absolutely. and it's like, even at school, I was oh. like, I was learning about the Tudors and I'm like suddenly now I'm expected to do my own tax return no one's ever explained to me like yeah I think I'm so economically illiterate well, but, yeah. but again it shows one of the systemic factors that can cause homelessness yeah. which mm. is lack of education around Massively. money management yeah. and you know those people who are privileged enough to mm. have parents who teach them about saving or schools that teach them about saving massively you know they have such an advantage huge like everyone says like information is power and it's that type of information for anyone who was affected by any of the issues discussed here our next episode is a mini special in which our sources from this week advise listeners on how to react when you see a homeless person. We'll be getting guidance straight from the horse's mouth. So listen out next Thursday. Kai, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people follow you and do you have anything you'd like to plug? Um, yeah, you can follow me on all the socials. Kai, <laughs> Samra. Uh, yeah, my Amazon special's out under class on Amazon Prime and Soho Theatre On Demand and... Uh, and yeah, you can watch that there. And then I'm going to Edinburgh again this year. Woo. And I'll be at Soho Theatre a few times this year as well. I've got a few plugs for some of the sources you had earlier in the investigation. Firstly, The Big Issue magazine and its senior reporter on homelessness, Liam Garrity, were really helpful setting up some of these interviews. For anyone who doesn't know, The Big Issue, as well as being a great read, provides employment opportunities to people in poverty. And some of the interviewees personally told me how much the enterprise helped them. So if you can subscribe, there are a range of deals on their website. And if you see vendors selling, please stop and buy one. You can also watch Ben Jay's film, Sent to Coventry, on YouTube and buy Kerry's book, Gutter to Glory, Pavements to Parliament online. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with the bonus episode next week before our next deep dive into drugs and the war against them on the 24th of Feb. Follow MediaStorm wherever you get your podcast so that you can get access to new episodes as soon as they drop. If you like what you hear, share this episode with someone and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps more people discover the podcast and our aim is to have as many people as possible hear these voices. You can also follow us on social media at Matilda Mal, at Helen Obodia, and follow the show via at MediaStormPod. Get in touch and let us know what you'd like us to cover and who you'd like us to speak to. MediaStorm, a new podcast from the 
House of the Guilty Feminist is part of the ACOS Creator Network. It is produced by Tom Selinski and Deborah Francis-White. The music is by Samphire.